The following message is brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of the Ambassador Baptist Church and Pastor Joshua Ermler. Nehemiah chapter number four is where we'll be today. Nehemiah chapter number four for our text reading. It's hard to believe, but this is the very last sermon in our series, The God Who Builds. Uh, Over the last three and a half months, we have been going verse by verse by verse all the way through the book of Nehemiah, found in the Old Testament scriptures. It's been a wonderful time studying the Word of God together. I hope you've enjoyed going verse by verse and really getting a total picture of what's happening here in this passage. And today we're going to kind of wrap this whole thing up. Our kind of theme for this series has been God often does His greatest building at the very place of our most agonizing brokenness. You see, you and I have the tendency to believe that, well, when our life starts falling apart, when work starts falling apart, career, family, relationships, finances start falling apart, we can begin to get the idea that that is the end. And yet from God's perspective, those times of brokenness are often just the beginning of what God wants to do in the days ahead. It's not the end of your story. More often than not, it's the beginning of a better story. And that's what we see in the book of Nehemiah. Um, We're going to take some time this morning to overview this entire book as a recap and uh, look at a few things that God taught us over the last three and a half months. And so we're going to start in chapters number one, and we're going to move through the entire book in one single Sunday morning. So put on your seatbelts, get ready to go. Uh, We are going to be flying through it this morning. The Bible says in Nehemiah chapter number four, verse six, so built we the wall. And all the wall was joined together unto the half thereof. Notice this. For the people had a mind to work. We're going to spend some time as we just look at the God who builds, shall we pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for each and every individual that's here this morning. Lord, we're so grateful for the many who serve, who volunteer, who co-labor and minister with our church family and making an impact in this community. And I pray that today would be a day where we can celebrate that reality. Lord, we also want to thank you for this book that we've been able to go through verse by verse. And over the last three and a half months, study every chapter, uh, every verse, looking at what it is that you would have for us to glean from your word, because we believe that your word will not return void. I pray that you would just give us a, a, a very clear perspective of, of what it is that your word and this book specifically is attempting to teach us as we wrap up this series this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may be seated. Well, we're going to dive right into it. In chapters number one and chapters number two of the book of Nehemiah, we saw the brokenness that God allows. So if you're taking notes, you can fill that in. The brokenness that God allows. We saw this specifically in chapters number one and verse number three, where the Bible speaks of these words. It talks about how these people were afflicted, how they were under a reproach, how their gates were burned with fire, and there was only a remnant that remained. And we get a very bleak picture of what was happening in Jerusalem at this time in history. And we get an idea in chapters number one that there's a lot of brokenness taking place. In our lives, in the physical realm, when something breaks, more often than not, it's an accident. How many of you, be honest, have ever broken something in your home? Maybe a dish, you dropped it. Uh, Maybe you were, how many of you guys have ever tried to fix something and only made it worse? Have you ever done this before? All right. You broke something. And honestly, when we break something, it's on accident. 
But that's not always the case. I, I think of a, a particular story. I, uh, in our home around Christmas time, my wife had this Christmas crystal candle. Uh, not candle, but like a candy dish that she would put candies in, Christmas candies. How many of you have those that maybe around Christmas time, it's a little crystal dish, has some candies in it. My wife had one of these dishes that had candy in it and things, and it just every Christmas time it just appeared, and there was candy in it. And then after Christmas, it would disappear, and then next Christmas it would reappear. I don't know how all that works, but that's how it worked in our home. And one particular year, I, I had that dish, and there was some candies in it. I was eating the candies, and and I knew that my parents and my family were going to come over to our home and we were going to have Christmas Day and open some presents and, and just enjoy the day together. And so I'm sitting on the couch, uh, flipping through my phone, eating some of the candies from the candy dish. And I hear the knock on the door and I knew my parents or my family was there. And so uh, rather than just leaving that dish there, I decided to take that dish with me with the you know, crystal dish with all the candies. And I walked over to the door and I'm just eating these candies out of the candy dish. And I open the door right there and I start talking to them a little bit. And, I, and my, my mom sees the candy dish and she's like kind of got... And I back up, and right as I'm backing up, my arm hits something, and the, the candy dish drops from my hands onto the tile floor right at our door and completely shatters, sending the candy going everywhere, you know? And I'm, I'm kind of like, oh, you know, it, it's no big deal. It's just an old candy dish, you know, that, my, that Jenny had laying around. And uh, my mom looks at me, and she says, Josh, that was your grandmother's candy dish that I gave to Jenny, you know? And I just thought, uh-oh, I'm in trouble, you know? You see, I broke it, but it was completely on accident. That was not a plan that I had to break it. You see, when we break things, more often than not, it's an accident. But oftentimes, God allows brokenness to happen in our lives. And I'm going to say this. It's not always an accident. I'm not saying that God causes all the brokenness in our lives, but I will say this. In His sovereignty and providence, He allows it. He allows brokenness in our life. He allows parts of our lives to break and fall apart at the seams so that he, in his power, his grace and sovereignty, can take those pieces and put them back together the way they were meant to be. He can take the broken pieces of a relationship and literally put them back together so that the relationship is better than it was before it was broken. He can take a financial situation that we're looking at and think, oh, it's broken, it's all messed up. How did this business fail? How did this thing fall apart? And in the process of it falling apart, if we surrender it to him, he can take the pieces of those things, put it together in a way to where it is actually better than it was before it broke. You see, God often allows brokenness, and that's exactly what he allowed in Nehemiah chapters number one and Nehemiah's chapter number two. He allows brokenness. Psalms chapter number 34 and verse number 18 says this, The Lord is nigh, he is close to them that are of a broken heart. You have a broken heart today? Is there something that's going on in your life that's just causing you to be broken? Maybe a relationship that isn't what you wish it was. Maybe there's a financial situation that you're struggling through. Maybe in your spiritual walk, you don't feel like you're where you would like to be and there's a sense of brokenness in your life right now. I want to remind you, based on the authority of the Word of God, the Bible says that God is close. He is near to them that are of a broken heart. Notice this, and saveth such that are of a contrite spirit. Those who are humble, those who are yielded, who say, God, I'm broken, I'm messed up, but God, I give you the pieces of my life. God says, I'm close to you and I'll take care of it. I will save you. As we said a moment ago, God often allows you to be broken apart so he can put you back together the way you were supposed to be. 
You see, we get this idea, we get this agenda of the way our life should be. And so we work and we navigate and we manipulate and we plan trying to put our lives together the way we would like. And God says, wait a second, I'm going to allow your life to break. I'm going to allow maybe you to lose a job. I'm going to allow a relationship to come undone at the seams. I'm going to allow some some perceived brokenness in your life because I want to take those broken pieces. I want to put them together in a way that would actually be better than it was when it was still fixed. You see, that's what God is capable of doing. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. You see, contrary to what we would expect, brokenness is the pathway to blessings. There are no alternative routes. There are no shortcuts. The very thing that we dread and are tempted to resist is actually the means of God's greatest blessings in our lives. He takes the broken things and he makes them new. And so in Nehemiah chapters number one and Nehemiah's chapter number two, we see the brokenness that God allowed among the people of Israel. The brokenness that God allowed there in Jerusalem. The brokenness of the walls. The brokenness of the people. And we see a brokenness that God allows. But it didn't stop there. As you get to the end of chapter number two, we see where Nehemiah goes to the king, Artaxerxes, and he says, hey, I've got a plan. I want to go back to Jerusalem. I want to restore what is broken. And God begins to put a burden, a holy discontentment in the spirit of Nehemiah to go and be the difference there in that area. He had a radical dependence upon God. He had a faith in God that God was going to do something big even in the midst of this brokenness. He believed God. His confidence was in God. He had a dependence upon God. But he still had a plan. He still had a strategy. And we were reminded that spiritual faith is not opposed to strategic planning. There are people, Christians in our world, who think, well, if you're really spiritual, then you'll just kind of wait on God to do everything, and he'll take care of it all, and God will do what you can. I understand there is a place as we trust God, but that has to do with the posture of your heart. That the posture of your heart is not one of control. That the posture of your heart is not one of manipulation. That the posture of your heart is one of peace, The posture of your heart is one of dependence. The posture of your heart is one of confidence in God. But that doesn't mean you can't have a strategy. It doesn't mean that you can't have a plan. It doesn't mean that you can't move forward and do something. A lot of Christians, in the name of trusting God, become very passive and do nothing in their lives. You see, trusting God and dependence upon God has more to do with the posture of your heart than it has to do with the mobility of your actions. It is possible to have a heart posture that is dependent upon God while having behaviors that are moving forward. And that is the tension that we need to manage as believers, recognizing I'm not going to stress out, I'm not going to worry, I'm not going to fret about what's going to happen. No, the confidence of my heart is that God's in control, but I'm going to keep moving forward. I'm going to use the wisdom God gives me to make an impact in the world in which I live, in the, in the family God's given me. I'm going to use wisdom when it comes to my marriage or when it comes to work or finances, but I'm going to place my confidence, my hope, my trust in the sovereignty, providence, and power of God. And that is where we want to be as believers, to manage that tension between the two. This leads us to chapters number three through chapters number seven of Nehemiah, which is the building God does. Chapters number one and two is the brokenness God allows. Chapters number three through chapters number seven is the building God does. And as we saw, God doesn't just build us up in spite of the broken pieces of our lives. 
I've heard Christians say, well, you know, my, my life's broken right now, but God's still on the throne and, and he'll work in spite of this broken situation. Yeah, I know this, this circumstance is broken, but God can work in spite of this broken circumstance. But what we're going to see in Nehemiah is God doesn't work in spite of these things. God literally uses the broken pieces. He literally uses those things that are broken and he uses those to build something with. You'll see they literally use the rubble to build these walls. They are going to use the broken pieces of the wall to rebuild it. And in much the same way, God uses the broken pieces of your relationships, the broken pieces of your finances, the broken parts of your career, even the brokenness in your past. And he will use all those pieces when they are surrendered to him to make something in your life that's far more beautiful than could ever have been if that brokenness did not exist. God doesn't just work in spite of your brokenness. He uses the brokenness to build something beautiful with, the building that God does. We came to chapters number six, and we see as Nehemiah and the children of Israel were building that they came against opposition. And let me remind you, any time, any time that there is building that God is doing in your life, in your spirit, in your relationships, in your marriage, in your family— any time that God is doing a building work in your life, mark it down, there will be opposition. There will be um, critics. There will be difficulties. There will be hardships. There is no way to experience a building work without opposition. Now, I know that doesn't sound very comforting, but the Bible tells us that all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. There's no way around the opposition. It's impossible. In chapters number six and verse number four, we see four ways in which the opposition comes against Nehemiah. The first way that the enemy tried to get at Nehemiah was he, they tried to distract him. They tried to distract him. Sam Ballad and Tobiah said, hey, Nehemiah, why don't you come over to the Valley of Ono? This was like a retreat area in that day and age. It would be kind of like the equivalent of our Palm Springs or something. Hey, come over to the, to, to the oasis, you know, take a vacation. Let's go on a retreat. You need a break. And, and so what they try to do is they try to distract Nehemiah from the building work that he was doing there in Jerusalem. And, and Nehemiah said this, he said, I am doing a great work. I can't come down. Nehemiah was saying, I'm not going to be distracted by lesser things. There's nothing intrinsically wrong with going to the Valley of Ono. But Nehemiah said, God's called me to do this. I'm not going to allow myself to be distracted. And yet we live in a day and age right now where there's Christians and believers and, and they allow themselves to get distracted by a thousand things smaller than the will of God. And I want to encourage you today to keep your eyes fixed on Christ, to enjoy Christ to such a deep degree, to experience him to lavish in his blessing and grace to where you're not your heart is not prone to be distracted by things smaller than the presence of God and so Nehemiah would not be distracted not that it was a bad thing but he said I've got a better thing he said no to lesser things so he could say yes to greater things and if you're going to continue to say yes to big things in your life you're going to have to get very good at saying no to lesser things If you want to say yes to your family, you might have to say no to some hobbies. 
If you want to say yes to a relationship with a church family, you might have to say no to some overtime. If you want to say yes to these things that are important and spending time with God, it might mean you have to say no to some social media or some internet browsing. I'm not saying these things are wrong. I'm saying in order to say yes to big things, it mandates that you're willing to say no to lesser things. You see, we live in a society where we want to say yes to everything. Any opportunity, anything that comes our way, we want to say yes, yes. We don't want to miss out on anything. But I want to remind you that opportunity does not equal obligation. Write that down. Opportunity does not equal obligation. Just because you have an opportunity doesn't mean it's the best thing for your life or for your soul or for your family at that minute. The people who are able to get that which God would have them to do and fulfill God's will in the greatest capacity are those who have gotten really good at saying no to lesser things. Not bad things, not evil things, but things that would distract them from those greatest priorities in their life. So the enemy comes along, they try to distract them, it doesn't work. Nehemiah says, I'm not going to come down from the wall, this is what God's called me to do. And so now they try another strategy. Now the enemy comes along and they try to slander Nehemiah. They start gossiping about him. They say to the people, they start whispering behind his back, do you know his real motives? Do you know what he's really trying to do? you know what he really wants? He's trying to be the king. He's trying to take you guys over. He's trying to, you know, insert his authority over your life. And we're going to see in a few chapters, he bows out at the end. That wasn't his heart at all. But the enemy comes along and starts slandering. And I want to remind you of this. If God is doing a building work in your life, there will be people who will come along and they will try to gossip about you. They will try to slander you. They will try to talk about you behind your back. They'll reframe what you're doing and how you're doing. Just mark it down that as you're trying to move forward for Christ, there will be opposition. And oftentimes that opposition comes in the form of criticism and slander. You say, I just don't like it. Don't bow out. Say, by God's grace, I want to move through this. The enemy tries to slander. The enemy tries to distract. That didn't work. And so then they try a third tactic and they try to tempt him to do wrong. They try to tempt him to sin, to do something that goes against what God would have him to do. Once again, Nehemiah sees right through it. He says, hey, I'm not going to do that thing. They were trying to lure him, tempt him to do something that wouldn't honor God. And Nehemiah, once again, wouldn't fall for the bait. Again and again and again, they're trying to destroy his life, but he would not be destroyed. So finally, they, fi- they try a final tactic. And this is the tactic that the enemy will often use on us. And that is, they try to come to a place to deceive him. They try to start lying to him. Sam Ballad and Tobiah start telling the other nobles in Jerusalem. They start, they start saying, hey, this and that. And they try, to, they try to deceive them and try to deceive Nehemiah into what's actually going on here. And you know what? The enemy will often try to do that in your life. Try to get you to believe something that is not true. He'll try to get, convince you that, man, God's not for you. That church isn't worth it. That pouring into your kids isn't going to make a difference anyways. They're not listening to you. You know, at work, you're never going to move forward. Man, the enemy will try a thousand things and a thousand different lies to try to convince you to quit, to give up, to throw up the white flag and just be done with it all. And I want to say to you, it's a lie from the enemy. You've got to fight the lies of the enemy with the truth of God's word. The Bible reminds us that Satan is the author and father of all lies. And so there's a father of lies and as the enemy, he'll try to tell you that, well, you know, your spouse doesn't love you anymore. 
it's time to move on. He'll try to tell you that, man, family's not worth it and there are bigger and better things you can do. Just move forward with your life. He'll try to tell you you go to church all the time and you serve and look, you get nothing out of it. It's not helping you. It's not serving you. And he'll tell you lie after lie after lie after lie until all of a sudden you'll come to a place and like, yeah, that's true, isn't it? It'll feel right. But a Nehemiah wouldn't fall for this one either. No matter what the opposition tried to do, the building work just continued to go on. It was Albert Hubbard who said it wisely. If you want to avoid criticism, I thought, this is cool. How do, how do I avoid criticism, right? You want to avoid criticism? He said this. He said, if you want to avoid criticism, say nothing, do nothing, be nothing. Sounds like a good formula. <laughs> that's, that's the secret to, to avoiding criticism. Say nothing, do nothing, be nothing. Albert Einstein said it this way, great spirits have always encountered violent opposition from mediocre minds. You see, whenever you're trying to allow God to do a building work in your life, mark it down, you will have your critics. Every pastor has their critics, every president has their critics, every leader has their critics, every parent has their critics, every boss has their critic, every employee has their critics. You don't move forward in your life without criticism, without opposition, without difficulties, without obstacles. It's a fact of life. The goal for the believer is not to avoid all opposition and all difficulties and all trials. That's an illusion that the enemy will try to point out in front of you. Hey, if you live a certain way, you'll have no obstacles, no, no problems. I want to say this. For the believer, the goal is not to avoid opposition, to avoid problems. The goal for the believer is to move through problems with grace, peace, and joy, which is possible in the Spirit. That's the promise that God gives you. So let's keep Moving on, Nehemiah, he fight, he lets God fight these battles for him. He doesn't take revenge, he just lets God fight. What I have found to be interesting is we've been moving through this series. It's been awesome to me just to kind of see how God has been doing a parallel work in our church's life through this season. Back in January, we started going through this book, and at the same time, we as leaders and uh, deacons and staff laid out a vision on what we believe God wanted to do here through our church family. And we had three big objectives that we were praying that God would do. Number one, allow us to transition to a double service structure. And, and I'm glad to say, as of uh, late uh, April, we are now in a double service structure. At 9.30, we had a great group here. Here at 11 o'clock, another great group. A lot of volunteers got involved in our committed campaign to make this a reality and it was an awesome success because the church gathered together to do a work for God then we had the uh, objective of bringing on a student ministries pastor and and God blessed us with our very own student ministries pastor and and it's been such a blessing to see as they've been able to serve with our teenagers and serve in different ministries and and that took place about a month ago and and now just a couple of weeks ago seeing that the third objective was completed and we were able to add on more space for a student ministries center as well as a children's play area and we're so excited to see what God's doing as we were willing to get behind and is willing to serve and sacrifice in order to make those things happen. You see the same building that God was doing in Jerusalem is the same building that God wants to do through our church but I want to take it even a step further. It's the same building that God wants to do in your family. It's the same building that God wants to do in your marriage. It's the same building that God wants to do in your spiritual life. 
As we allow these truths to saturate our lives, we don't have to be stagnant. We don't have to just kind of float through the motions. We can be a people that continues to advance for the glory of Jesus Christ. And that's what we're seeing here, and it's so awesome to be a part of it. And yet we need to be reminded of what Galatians 6 tells us, to be not weary in well-doing. Why? The Bible tells us if we're weary in well-doing, we'll, we'll, we'll faint. So let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. And so we see in this passage the brokenness that God allowed. And then we saw in this passage the building God does. And then you get to chapters number 8 through chapters number 12, and you see, that the, you see what we call the, the blessings that God gives. The blessings that God gives. All of a sudden, in 52 days, these people had built the wall. And it was awesome. They had a big celebration, a big party. They got out there and just really celebrated what God had done through their lives. And uh, it, was a, it was an incredible time. And, and God really did bless. He, he blessed them physically with that wall. He blessed them emotionally as they were able to now see many of their family members come back to Jerusalem. They were blessed spiritually through a, through a revival of sorts, a spiritual awakening that took place. And, and God was just doing some incredible works in the latter chapters of Nehemiah. And there was just a lot of blessings. And yet their blessings were not anchored only to circumstances, but more importantly, their blessings were anchored to what God was doing in their spirit. It was C.S. Lewis who said this, to be truly joyful, a man must have a source of gladness, which is not dependent upon anything in this world. Wow, what an awesome, awesome reality. The reality is this, is we don't have to have the perfect job in order to have joy. We don't have to have all the finances we need to be happy. We don't need our spouse to behave a certain way in order to be at peace. You see, the reality is this. We can have an anchor. We can have a source of gladness that is not anchored to anything in this world. And it really is the secret to long-term peace. The reason that some of us in this room struggle to be continually happy or joy-filled is because we've anchored our joy to things smaller than Jesus. And those things cannot carry the weight of your joy. The moment you try to anchor your joy to a spouse, that spouse will eventually fail you. The moment you try to anchor your happiness to a particular amount of finances or money in a bank account, eventually that will fail you. You need a source of gladness that is not anchored to anything in this world. So I ask you the question, what is your source of gladness? The Bible says in Proverbs chapter number 10, The blessing of the Lord, his presence maketh rich, and he addeth no sorrow with it. Can I remind you that the greatest blessing there is is an abiding relationship with Christ. To enjoy the fruit of the Spirit, His love, His joy, and His peace. That is what God wants you to experience. But if we keep running around trying to anchor our joy to lesser things, a career, a relationship, an amount of money, and we allow those things to be what we anchor our heart to, we will be let down every single time. And so C.S. Lewis in Wisdom reminds us that to be truly joyful... We need a source of gladness which is not dependent on anything in this world. We keep reading throughout Nehemiah and what we'll find is now God's people are so overwhelmed with God's blessings emotionally. They're so overwhelmed with God's blessings spiritually. They're so overwhelmed with God's blessings relationally on their life that it literally changes them from the inside out. And what we're going to find is they're going to come to a place where now they are going to covenant with God. 
they're going to make a commitment back to God. Because of everything that God has done for them, it began to overflow. And now they're making a covenant, a commitment back to God, saying, God, because you've done all this for us, this is what we want to do for you. There were three specific areas where they made a covenant with God. Things that they said, God, because you've done this for us, because you've been a good heavenly father to us, we can't help but want a covenant back with you. The first area was in relationship to their children. They begin to covenant and said, we are going to raise our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We're committed to this thing. We're going to cultivate the spiritual elements of our children. And they begin to commit, not just to do it, but they committed to God. They covenanted with God that this was going to be a priority in their life. Because God had been a good heavenly father to them, these dads wanted to be a good father to their children. And so they covenant for the next generation. They say, we're committing, we're covenanting before God that we're going to raise our kids, not just to know how to make money, not just to be well-adjusted citizens. We are going to commit ourselves to raise our kids in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. We're going to train them to learn how to love God and experience His grace. And they made this covenant with God because of what God had done for them, but it didn't stop there. Then they continue moving on and they said, not only are we going to make a covenant to the next generation, to our kids, cultivating them. Number two, they made a covenant. They made a commitment to Sabbath rest. The principle for us in the New Testament age is this. They were saying, because God, you made time for us, we covenant to make time for you. We're going to make time to abide with you and to enjoy you and to experience you. We're going we're gonna to take time to gather with your people, to be encouraged by them and to encourage them. We're going to prioritize the house of God. We're going to prioritize time with you. We're going to prioritize Sabbath rest. We're going to prioritize margin. We live in a day and age where people are so busy. They've got so much going on that they no longer have time for margin. They don't have time to be committed to God's house. They don't have time to nurture their children and help them develop in the things of God. They no longer have time, you know, to spend time with God's people. They're too busy. And so these people said, no, God, because you made time for us, we're making time for you. And we're covenanting with you that there's going to be Sabbath rest where we're going to gather with God's people. We're going to encourage and be encouraged by these sacred gatherings. And so I would say to us, as we are experiencing the grace of God, some of the fruits of that is that we now have time for the house of God. We now have time for the presence of God. We have time to gather with God's people to worship in community with Him. It's one of the fruits of a person who's experiencing and enjoying the grace of God. It's one of the marks of somebody who's authentically experiencing what God is doing in their lives. But that wasn't it. We continue to see in that chapter, not only did they covenant here in a commitment to their family and the next generation and commit to the Sabbath, but they also covenant with God in sacrificial, radical generosity. They say, God, because you've given so much to us, we're committing to give back to you. Because God had sacrificed for them and blessed them, they were going to be a blessing. It just overflowed to those around them. And so for a long time, they have been withholding their resources and their finances from the house of God. And so they said, no, we're no longer going to do that. We are now going to use our resources for kingdom impact. And we're going to be generous with what God has given to us. And so they literally make a covenant. And it is the longest portion of their covenant in that particular chapter. Yes, they commit to family, they commit to Sabbath, but that portion where they say we are committing generously 
to the work of God so that the mission of God can go forward through his church. That was their heartbeat. It was a covenant that they made. And I would say to you today that these are marks. They are fruits of people who truly understand grace. I get a little discouraged because I'll run around and I'll talk to people and they'll say, oh, because of grace, we no longer have to spend time with our kids and nurture them in the things of God. Because we have grace, we no longer need to make time for church. We can skip here and we don't need to gather with God's people. We don't have to make time for quiet time with the Lord. We're under grace. We don't have to give anymore. We don't have to be generous because after all, it's all under grace. And what you will find as you study the scriptures is a heart and a life that has been gripped by grace that truly not just knows it up here but is experiencing it in their soul they're experiencing the grace of god they're enjoying his peace they're abiding in his love and it's just overflowing in their life what happens is is there are fruits there are ramifications and some of the ramifications are listen i want to pour into others i want to make a difference in the lives of other people i want to make time for the things of god i want to come to a place where i'm being radically generous to the work of god these are fruits they are marks of people who have been gripped by grace and i'll say this when there are not these fruits radiating from your life you can talk about how you understand grace you can even begin to kind of you know skew why you have grace and somebody else doesn't but the bible teaches that there are fruits when you are truly experiencing the grace of god when you have been wrecked by his goodness it overflows It overflows with your time. It overflows with your prioritizing the next generation. It overflows into how you regard your finances. Unfortunately, there are people who try to say, man, I'm spiritual, I understand grace, I get grace, and yet there's no fruit. I would argue that maybe they don't get grace enough. They get it here. They get it in their head, God's grace is unmerciful, but they're not experiencing it on a regular basis. They're not experiencing a peace that passeth understanding. They're not experiencing a joy unspeakable and full of glory. They're not experiencing a love that they understand, like Paul prayed, he prayed that they would understand all the depth and the width, and the greatness of the affirmation and acceptance of God, if there are not these marks, I would argue that yes, you have an intellectual, cognitive understanding of grace, but you're not experiencing it. You're not enjoying it. It hasn't wrecked your soul. It hasn't made a difference in your life because somebody who's truly gripped with grace, there's fruit. There's fruit in the physical realm, and these are fruits. You got a heart for the next generation. You want to nurture your kids in the things of God. You have margin for Sabbath. You haven't packed your schedule so full that you no longer have time for God. You no longer have time for his presence. You no longer have time to abide with his people. There's just, you're too busy for it. You're no longer, there's not a generosity that exudes from your life. Your resources are spent on buying cooler things and bigger houses and cooler toys. But the reality is, in the whole scheme of things, very little of percentage goes to kingdom work goes to being generous to the world around you. You say, how do I know if I understand grace? There are fruits of grace. There are ramifications. And you can try to convince me and you can try to convince a church and you can try to convince those around you that you get grace because you can articulate it. But if there are not marks, I I don't say this to make you feel guilty. I say this to challenge you. Maybe God has something more for you. 
Maybe he wants you to experience a joy that is more profound than you understand and a peace that's far richer than anything you can possibly get your head around right now. And maybe there's a love that he wants you to be able to enjoy and experience that you're not fully getting right now. And that's what we have for you. That's what God has for you. It's what he wants you to experience. And when that's being experienced and when that's being enjoyed, And when that's really gripping your soul, it overflows in marks of grace. Pouring into the next generation. Making time for Sabbath rest with God and with his people. Being radically, extravagantly generous to kingdom work. Those are the marks of people who've been gripped by grace, like the people in Jerusalem. They were so gripped by what God had done. Well, then we get to chapter number 13, and we see the propensity of drift. The covenants that they had made, they started to drift. And yet we see in this passage that even when they were not faithful to God, God was faithful to them. And he even blessed them with grace. Now, In chapters number 13, I could argue that it was an uncomfortable grace. It was not a grace that made them feel warm and fuzzy inside, but it was grace nonetheless because it was God in his providence and his sovereignty trying to draw them to a place where they could experience the full riches of the fruit of the Spirit in their life. And so he allowed them to be somewhat uncomfortable so he could get them to a place where they could enjoy the full ramifications of the fruit of the Spirit. And in love, he poured out grace, even though it was uncomfortable. You see, my friend, God often does his greatest building at the place of our most agonizing brokenness. So we'll end with this. God can heal a broken heart, and he can fix a broken life. But you've got to surrender to his will. Give him the pieces. What is it that God wants you to surrender? Yeah, there's brokenness in your life. What is it that he wants you to give to him? To say, God, take these and take the brokenness and build it up. What is it in your life that he's calling you to surrender to his sovereignty? That's the question. The God who builds, he'll do it. If you'll surrender to him. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of the Ambassador Baptist Church. If this message was a blessing to you, please consider leaving us a review or sharing the message on social media. Thanks once again for tuning in.